Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, January 24th, day 11 of the 2024 Australian Open, now officially in the books. It was the final day of quarterfinal play in both the men's and women's singles draws, and it certainly provided tennis fans plenty of entertainment to enjoy. The headlines from our four singles matches were as followed. We have two first-time semifinalists at the majors in the top half of the women's singles draw as both Diana Yastremska and Jung Chin Wen ultimately advanced. Vance Chin Wen, one of two matches settled in a deciding set. She was pushed to a third against Anna Kalinskaya. You also had all sorts of funkiness in the Medvedev Hercots quarterfinal bout. Medvedev up a break for the majority of that fourth set. Ultimately, Hoopy comes back, takes it 7 5, forces a fifth, and then in the end, it is the steadiness of Daniil Medvedev pulling that match out in five, advancing to another semifinal. Obviously, want to break down the mechanics of all three of the matches I've mentioned thus far. And then, of course, our final headline, it's a first top five victory for Sasha Zverev at the majors. Zverev knocking off second-seeded Carlos Alcaraz in four sets. Probably should have won it in three. And there is no doubt that is the best serving performance we have seen from Zverev, certainly at the majors. Maybe the best serving performance we have seen in recent memory at the majors. And I'll explain what I mean by by that on today's show. Again, four outstanding results. I want to break down each of Yastremska, Chinwen, Medvedev, Zverev's wins here on today's show. Catch all of you listeners up as we prepare for our semifinals to begin, as I always like to say, the business end of the year's first major. And by the way, on this show, I'm going to preview day 12's matches, our women's single semifinals, Sabalenka versus Goff, Yastremska versus Chinwen. What can you expect in those two battles? We'll get into that here on today's show. Of course, before we do, I know I've brought this up the past couple of days, but our Crack Rackets team is really excited for some content we'll have for all of you tennis fans over the course of the next weekend. We are covering so much of what is always the symbolic ceremonial start to a college tennis season. It's ITA kickoff weekend. 21 of the 30 host sites going to be a part of our coverage. That'll be spread out across both our Crack Rackets YouTube channel as well as ESPN Plus over the course of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. So look, again, you've got that ESPN Plus subscription already if you've been following this Australian Open. Use it for the rest of this month. Come watch what, in my opinion, is the single most exciting, energetic, 
passionate level of tennis we have in the tennis universe. Come watch the best teams, all of the best teams in college tennis compete this weekend on our Crack Rackets cross-court cast again Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. They'll be available on ESPN Plus. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they'll also be available on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. And as the wise John J. Parsons, our college tennis contributor, says, you can put me on mute. You can listen to the Australian Open matches. You can do whatever else it is you need to do. But we would sincerely appreciate your sport as we try to grow the platform we are able and the spotlight we are able to shine uh, on college tennis, obviously, to be on ESPN+. Plus, A massive deal, so we're really excited for that. Again, Friday, our coverage starts, I believe, at 10 a.m. Saturday, 9 a.m. start. Sunday, 10 a.m. start. Monday, 2.30 p.m. Eastern time start. Again, that coverage going to be spread out across both our Crack Rackets YouTube channel as well as ESPN+. Plus. So be on the lookout for ITA kickoff weekend coverage this weekend. And of course, if you're looking for a preview of that action, head on over to our Great Shot podcast feed where we're going to preview all 30 regions in play over the course of the next two days. Of course, a thank you as well to all of you listeners who have tuned in not only on whatever it is, podcast platform you listen on, but of course, those of you now tuning in on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel, we sincerely appreciate that fact. I appreciate all of the college gear I have been sent over the years. That's why I'm trying to switch up what team I'm repping each and every episode. So if you want to see if this is the day your team is repped, be sure to go check things out uh, on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel, not just to catch the broadcast, but again, these podcasts and a bunch of other really fun content we've got planned for you all in 2024. Of course, a thank you, last but certainly not least, to our friends at Tennis Point for their support, tennis-point.com for all the latest and greatest products at the best prices in the tennis world, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right, let's talk day 11 at the 2024 Australian Open because this was certainly a fun one. I'm going to go somewhat reverse chronologically here today. I'm going to start with the men, get to the women's singles recaps, and then our semifinal previews in the back half of this show. But if you'd like to skip ahead, whatever it is you do, you can find timestamps both in the description to this podcast or if you're watching on YouTube, I think it's built in to the video links as well. So you can jump directly to whatever match it is you want to hear discussed. I'm going to start with what was certainly, in my mind, the most intriguing result of the day, and that's the fact that there was a player who got the, I mean, multiple players, I suppose, who, in theory, got the biggest wins of their careers, but there is no doubt, in a career that has featured multiple 1,000-level titles, multiple year-end final titles, an Olympic gold medal, and a slam final appearance, I could argue this was both the best and most significant win of Sasha Zverev's career. And as Jeff Sackman of Tennis Abstract, who did the closest thing we have to quantifying the Tennis Hall of Fame in his Tennis 128, now 129, because he's added Sviantec exercise, I asked him about that exercise, the criteria he came up with in trying to suss out who are the best players in tennis history, what is the criteria you need to use across the board, and in Jeff Sackman's assessment, according to his formula, Sasha Zverev is probably the next guy to crack that top 128 list because the the totality of things Sasha Zverev has accomplished in his career, again, 1,000-level success double-digit second weeks at majors, two tour-level finals, an Olympic gold medal, where, by the way, the other match in the running for biggest victory of his career, if this one over Alcaraz isn't it, it's probably that 
from a set down, come from behind victory over Djokovic in the Olympic semifinals in 2021. Those are the clear-cut top two nominees for Sasha Zverev. The point is, again, he has done a lot of things. Capturing a major is the missing piece on his mantle. It is the final piece of the equation that, in my opinion, would unequivocally on-court cement what has been a Hall of Fame career. Zverev has been that good since he came onto the tour as a former junior prodigy, former junior slam champion, junior world number one, had all these expectations heaped upon him because of that pedigree, and to the most part as an on-court product— Sasha Zverev has, to the most part, lived up to that hype. Again, the slam title is missing, but for what it's worth, with this semifinal run, Zverev now going to play in his seventh semifinal at the majors, still just 26 years old. Ostensibly, there's still a three, four-year window for him to maximize this prime, and considering it's coming off of a debilitating ankle injury, that he has regain this level to beat Alcaraz twice in his last, what, three events. That's a remarkable run for a guy who 24 months ago, it was unclear what his tennis future would look like moving forward. Obviously, again, there's all those narrative pieces that work. And there's also the off-court component that has to be mentioned every time you cover Sasha Zverev, which is that he faces significant allegations of domestic violence. One, of course, not going to be adjudicated in German public court, but the other is currently in the judicial process as we speak, going to public trial. We'll get to learn more about that as the trial progresses and more information becomes available. And as I continue to say, of course, he is afforded the presumption of innocence, everyone in the judicial system should be uh, afforded the presumption of innocence. To have two credible domestic violence accusations thrown at him, though, and his lack of any sort of credible response to those cases, the lack of transparency in what the ATP has done to investigate those cases, the lack of transparency as it comes to a domestic violence-related policy for the ATP, I apologize I keep repeating myself on these topics, but these are all significant topics that will continue to be discussed, not just throughout the course of the 2024 season, but throughout the course of any time you bring up Sasha Zvira, because that is a significant piece looming over all of this right now. Is Should, should Sasha Zverev even be playing? What does it speak to maybe some of the institutional flaws of the ATP Tour, that there's at least no transparency in any sort of inv- investigation they're conducting or any sort of punishment that might eventually be handed down. Anyways, the point more broadly is there's a lot going on for Sasha Zverev. And through all of that, he played arguably the best tennis of his career last night in a four-set victory, uh, ultimately a 6-1, 6-3, 6-7, 6-4 victory over Alcaraz. That probably should have been decided in straight sets. Sasha Zverev served for that third set up 5-3. And look, when, when Alcaraz broke and woke up, it did feel like, all right, here come the late, you know, the the, the classic late-in-the-match slam yips for Sasha Zverev that have plagued him so frequently throughout the course of his career. And again, Sasha Zverev has never gotten a top-five win at a major until today. He is was prior to this round 2-14 against top 10 opponents in his career at the majors, and his second top 10 win came against Sinner at the 2023 U.S. Open. Like, again, few and far between. He lost his first 11 matches against top 10 opponents at the majors in his career. 
when Alcaraz, and I'm going to get back to sets one and two in a moment as I make the case for why this might be the best performance we've ever seen from Zverev at a, a serving performance, certainly of his career, maybe the best from anyone we've seen at a major. I'll get back to that, and sets one and two have a lot to do with that. But the fact that Alcaraz did break back when Zverev was serving forward at five, three, the fact that Zverev did get a little yippy, not only in hanging a few second serves, uh, not a few second serves, but a second serve. I mean, he hit fewer than 20 second serves in this match. I believe he only missed 17 first serves. Yeah, missed 17 total first serves in a four-set match where he hit 111 first serves. He made 85% of his first serves. And this isn't a guy who's hitting 110 first serves. This is a guy who uses all of his six foot six frame and gets to 125, 130 pretty easily on that first serve. And he made 85% of them last night. I guess we can't avoid that fact. What are we talking about with that serving performance? I apologize. I know this recap is all over the place. Anyway, Zverev cruised through the first two sets. He gets up a break early in the third. He's serving forward 5-3. There's no rhythm. There's no momentum-building moment. There's no charisma. There's no energy. There's no anything coming off of the other end of uh, of Carlos Alcaraz. 12 winners against 21 unforced errors in sets one and two. Just could never get the groove going. And then all of a sudden, he does. All of a sudden, he breaks. He holds for five all. He's ripping on the run passing shot winners on three different occasions in that third set breaker on his way to a pretty decisive 7-2 decision where, again, he hits the banana hook outside the alley, curves back inside the court on the run, forehand pass, beats Zverev a couple of times with an on-the-run forehand short angle pass. The magic started building. The momentum started building. And now all of a sudden, Alcaraz has a 7-6 set. Zverev's fate is staring down the ghost of losses past in situations like this. And you think to yourself, oh my God, we've got ourselves a match. And then we did it. And it's a credit to Sasha Zverev, who gets a break of serve in that fourth set and holds on to it the rest of the, you know, again, pretty consistently the rest of the way. Now, obviously, again, Alcaraz at one point was able to get a break back, but Zverev then able to race right back out ahead. There was no point where I think he felt any significant scoreboard pressure throughout the course of that fourth set. It was always Alcaraz forced to respond to a break from Zverev. He was always, again, inching ahead in each and every one of these sets that he played, and then he gets over the finish line with some fairly decisive serving uh, in that final 5-4 service game of the match. I mean, again, mentally, you could see what this one meant to Sasha Zverev to get his first top five win at a major, to reach a uh, seventh now career semifinal at the major, first on a hard court since the 2021 U.S. Open. You know, you look for Sasha Zverev since the start of the French Open last year. He's now 48 and 14 overall at 77% win percentage. He's holding serve 88.1% of the time. That's a top five number. The big thing during this stretch of time, and this has been the clear cut rebound for Zverev and his return to the top of the men's game. Since the start of the French Open, he's 7-8 and eight against top 10 opponents. He's won four of his last five against top 10, including two victories against Alcaraz, a victory over Rublev, which, again, he has pretty much dominant, dominated that matchup head-to-head, but he lost to Rublev multiple times for the first time last year, and to get that win late at the Tour Finals was just kind of restore order mentally for him from a confident standpoint. 
and then again, I know I've talked a lot about stats, superficial things, the mental side, the significance of this win for Zverev. Let's break down the tennis itself. Sasha Zverev played exceptional ball, and Alcaraz did not. You look at the stats for Carlos Alcaraz, 39 winners against 45 unforced errors overall, but remember, just 12 winners in those first two sets against 21 unforced errors when the rhythm just wasn't there. Why wasn't the rhythm there? Because again, Sasha Zverev made 85% of his first serves in this match. Alcaraz never got the clean cut, clear opportunities to play the sort of obvious plus one tennis that has defined the success he has had early in his career. He wasn't teeing off with ad side forehands, inside out, inside out, inside in. He didn't have opportunities to work the drop shot in because he had Zverev paralyzed six feet behind the baseline because that's almost what you have to do to respond to the relentless aggression, pace, heaviness of that Carlos Alcaraz ball. Alcaraz was never in those positions. Alcaraz was stuck either in the middle third of the court playing backhand to backhand cross court with Sasha Zverev, which is always where Sasha Zverev wants to be, or he was on the full sprint responding to some sort of 125 mile per hour plus body serve, T serve, wide serve. Zverev was hitting all of the spots with his first serve, which is why him making 85% was so particularly impressive. It's not just that he was dumping body every time or picking big targets. No, he was just landing that first serve every time. Zverev also broke serve seven of 10 times, held his ground so well. And I thought that was particularly impressive. It was noticeable to me, the Zverev return positioning maybe two feet behind the baseline, but not six feet behind the baseline, not 12 feet behind the baseline. He was trying to take time away from Carlos Alcaraz as quickly and frequently as possible. Zverev, 31 of 45 in this match at the net compared to the 30-40 of Alcaraz. Zverev, by the way, 28 winners against 25 unforced errors. Only hit seven aces in this match, but again, it was the 85% first serves that generated just so many easy plus one balls that even if they weren't approach shots, they were forehands yanked. By the way, he wasn't afraid to go into the belly of the beast. He played with pace into the Alcaraz forehand, which is what you have to be willing to do. You have to keep him honest and prevent him from, again, creeping over on that ad side and hitting forehands from there because when he's doing that, he is just the unequivocal aggressor. The broadest takeaway I can take uh, from this tennis to offer you fans and listeners who might have missed it is that this match was played on Zverev's terms. This was a battle of consistency, not a battle of plus one prowess. Now, for what it's worth, Zverev plus six in the zero to four shot rallies in this match. He was also plus, I'm doing quick math in my head, seven plus nine, 16 in the shot in the rallies that went over five shots. It just And by the way, he won 58 sh- rallies that went... Five plus shots, he won 67 zero to four shot rally. So it was pretty balanced in terms of easy plus ones plus the longer rallies going Zverev's way. And again, the key was that whether it was the depth on his return of serve or what his serve allowed him to do with his first shot in those rallies in his service games, he constantly had Carlos Alcaraz pinned on his back foot. Zverev was able to extend rallies in ways that, again, 98% of players aren't able to match physicalities. The comp, uh, Alcaraz's physicality, Zverev's combination of size, strength, and speed kind of affords him that ability. Look, it was a bad day for Carlos Alcaraz, and this continues to be a theme sometimes in losses is he gets a little rushed, right? For a guy who is so quick, 
who has maybe the best improvisational skills of a guy not named Novak Djokovic we've seen in tennis in in the 21st century. Like, we'll just go that far, period, on the men's side. For a guy with such improvisational skills, such on-the-run mag- ability to generate on-the-run magic, he gets a little slap-happy. Like, he wants to be hitting through his forehand. He wants to be the aggressor. He wants to be the one dictating the terms of play. And had he been a bit more patient, as we saw him down the stretch in set number three, like, the Zverev short ball maybe wasn't coming in those service games always, but it just felt like everything in the Alcaraz service games was rushed. Too many free errors, too many freebies, and you just can't give those to Sasha Zverev. Otherwise, he is going to be up a break on you in every set that you play, and it's just hard to overcome that sort of deficit consistently against a guy who is clearly playing top five tennis in the world. And by the way, that's the other takeaway from this is the discussion's over. Zverev's the fifth best player in the world right now. All due respect to Andre Rublev, who is number five in the rankings and leads Zverev by 20 points after this result. Zverev's the fifth best player in the world. Beats Alcaraz twice now in his last three events. Beat Sinner at the U.S. Open as well. One of Sinner's, what, like five losses uh, since the start of Wimbledon. Obviously, the blockbuster matchup. Blockbuster matchup. I must have said this on a million Crack Rackets podcasts by this point. There is an alternate universe, a parallel universe, a string theory, or what? what is it? The, a quantum realm universe we can find if you want to go with the Marvel side of things, where Sasha Zverev versus Daniil Medvedev is the defining rivalry right now in the ATP Tour. And I know there was a Breakpoint episode upon it. That's not what I mean by that. It has nothing to do with their personal animosity or the fluctuations in their personal relationship. I don't mean that sort of rivalry. I mean the defining rivalry in tennis at this point. Let's say Djokovic wasn't superhuman, which by the way, 99.9999999% of humans ever have not been able to sustain this level of play age 36 and onwards. Let's say Djokovic had been a bit more mortal. Let's say Carlos Alcaraz had, I mean, again, Alcaraz would still be in the dynamic here, sure, but there is a world where, again, these two guys, 27, 26 years old, Daniil Medvedev, Sasha Zverev, who have been perennial top five guys now for a half decade plus, won Masters titles, been in second week of majors, all these things, where they're the world's one and two where they're the ones who are competing for multiple Grand Slam titles at this point. And for what it's worth, these two have played one another more than any other opponents in their career. They've played 18 times. This will be their 19th. It's their first at the majors. Come on now. Like, it, it should have taken this long for them to play at this sort of stage at a Grand Slam. But that speaks to, again, Djokovic hasn't gone away. Rafa until last year, hadn't gone away. You have seen guys like Alcaraz, Sinner, start to emerge to take those spots. Obviously, Ruud, Tsitsipas have have had a say in the equation in Berrettini, Kyrgios, and slam finals as well. Again, this was the biggest win of Sasha Zverev's career. And just to put a finer point on it, I mentioned seventh semifinal for him at the majors. You look for him overall at the Grand Slams now. He has played 127 matches this was the second best first serve percentage of his career in a match at a majors. He beat Brandon Nakashima. He made 89% of his first serves 2022 Roland Garros pre-injury. This 84.7 number, second best of his career. And again, he did it in a major quarterfinal 
against the world number two. The other performances, like the other top five performances for him, Nakashima, Chechenato, Ramos, and actually then a Dominic team semifinal at the Australian Open in 2020, a match he ultimately lost in four sets. This is the sixth time in Sasha Zverev's career he's made more than 80% of his first serves in a major match. Here's what I'm saying. For a guy who so routinely has had second serve yips that, by the way, haven't gone away, and I know I brought this up in the past with our dear friend Gil Gross. I don't remember if it was on our show or his. But for a guy who had these second serve yips, it's unbelievable that his solution to solving those second serve problems wasn't, hey, I'm going to fundamentally try to change something about my second serve. It was, no, I'm just going to make 70% of my first serves, as he's done now for a couple of years consecutively, and just make my first serve so untouchable that the second serve yips don't matter. And in this match, they didn't because, again, he missed 17 of 111 first serves, just 17 throughout the course of this match. And, yeah, he went 8 of 17 on those points. He went 69 of 94 on the first serve points and, again, able to fight off three of just five break points that he faced in this match. Now, it was a sloppy performance for Carlos Alcaraz, who, by the way, like— I'm not concerned about coming out of this one. Alcaraz still 24 and 11 against top 20 opponents over the last 52 weeks. He's still 11 and 7 against the top 10 as well. He's there again. Five guys in his career he's played multiple times who he has losing records against: Zverev, Djokovic, Nadal, FAA, and Michael Emer. That's it. He's four and four against center if you include their challenger battle, and I always do. All right, like it, this is his best performance at an Australian Open to date, like for what it's worth. These are points he didn't have on his resume last year. So from a rankings perspective, you know, Medvedev's got to win this Australian Open to surpass Alcaraz and take the number two ranking away from him. Even if Sinner wins this Australian Open, he will still be number three behind Carlos Alcaraz. Carlos Alcaraz is just fine. Coming out of this match, uh, again, obviously you look for Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, he's now in his last 52 weeks of play, still a whopping 69 and 13 overall. So, yeah, ain't no worries there. This was a must-have for Sasha Zverev to start his 2024, and he gets it. Ultimately, four-set victory. He advances to the semifinals on a date with Daniil Medvedev. Now, I'm not going to spend nearly as long on any of the other matches because, frankly— Again, from a result standpoint, I just don't think they matter as much to the broader narrative moving forward the way this Zverev-Alcaraz match does. Like Again, for Zverev now to have beaten Sinner and Alcaraz at the last two majors, for him to have also beaten Alcaraz at the World Tour Finals, not only does he stake his claim, hey, I'm the fifth best player in the world, if he goes out and beats Daniil Medvedev in the semifinals, which is 1,000% in the realm of possibility, it's now probably a five-man tier one where it's just, okay, Zero's back. You got to throw him in that tier one conversation up there now with the Medvedevs, with the Algarazes, with the Sinners. Maybe Djokovic is in a tier 1A of his own because he's in the Novak category again, the Eternals or Immortals. If Eternals was sticking with the Marvel theme, trying to keep that theme for the episode for all of you listeners. But the point is, a win like this for Zirev, he's now knocking on that door of Tier 1 once again. And obviously, if he gets through that door, he's going to see Daniil Medvedev hanging out in the Tier 1 club. Medvedev extracting every ounce of fight he has to ultimately grind his way to a 7-6, 2-6, 6-3, 5-7, 6-4 victory. Now, Let's do a quick 
Hubi autopsy before we get to the Medvedev side of things. You look for Hubi Hercots now, 30 and 12 since the start of Wimbledon, 71% win percentage. He's holding 90.6% of the time. 90.5% of the time, by the way, against top 10 opponents, uh, top 20 opponents, excuse me. So that percentage hasn't, you know, again, that's sustainable against elite competition. That serve, that plus one arsenal, his willingness to serve and volley, the ability to pressure you in so many different ways. That has success against everyone. Five and eight against top 10 opponents during that stretch with a Shanghai Masters title, an Australian Open quarterfinal run at Wimbledon round of 16. Hubi has been a top 10 player for six months. That's the takeaway in this Australian Open result was confirmation of that fact. This was, again, as I like to say, the proverbial feather in the cap to be like, oh, no, Hubi should be ranked nine as he is right now in the live rankings. He's a top 10 guy. He's knocking on that door of tour final status. The clay court results have to get a little bit better, but he is always a threat to make a final eight run at any quick surface, hard court, grass court event that he plays. And again, a guy who could certainly come out of the sunshine swing in a position where first third of the month, he's a top eight guy uh, coming out of it. He was right there with Daniil Medvedev. And to see Hercats overcome a break, Medvedev served for that match. Obviously, Hercats able to break, able to push. Uh, I don't excuse me. Medvedev didn't serve for that match, but Medvedev was up a break for the majority of that third set and to see things get away from him so quickly. Hercots ultimately running away with that 7-5 third. I mean, again, it speaks to just who be, not only does he have that underlying aggression, the serve, the plus one, the serve and volley to make you uncomfortable, and he did that routinely against Medvedev in this match. 16 aces. He won 81% of his first serve points. He hit 61 winners, and he was 38 of 52 at the net. By the way, zero to four shot rallies, which means serve, return, first forehand, and a passing shot response. Hubie Hercots plus 22 in the zero to four shot rallies in this match. He won 100 to Medvedev, 78 of those. By the way, overall, total points won. Hercots 164 to Medvedev, 156. Hercots played Medvedev dead even in this match. Maybe again, even total points was a little bit better from start to finish. And yet... There's just the veteran guile of Daniil Medvedev. Somehow finds his way to that break at 3-all in the uh, fifth set. Holds the rest of the way. He hit 10 double faults, but 11 aces for him. 78% first serve, uh, 78% first serve win percentage. 43 winners against 42 unforced errors. Four of nine on break points, but was able to fight off 10 break points himself. Hercots 5 of 15 in the match. I mean, again, there were moments where Medvedev had Hercots on a string, where he was finding the outer thirds, where he was generating four stairs, maybe not winners, but four stairs off the racket of Hercots who felt pressure to go for something big or else continue to be yanked around. But Hubi's weapons were the biggest weapons in this match. When Hubi heated up, things became on Hubi's terms. Hubi became the one dictating the term again, the terms of play. That's two sentences that mean the exact same thing. His weapons held up against the guy who pressures you as tough as anyone not named Novak Djokovic in terms of needing to be consistent in Daniil Medvedev. I was extraordinarily impressed with what I saw from Hercots. That was actually my takeaway more from anything else. Not that, you know, again, Daniil Medvedev was unimpressive. And by the way, I think we've only really seen Medvedev play one match where he sustained his best level from start to finish. I think that's the Felix match so far in this event. 
And yet Medvedev was just able to find a way to grind through. It was how well he was moving. His on-the-run forehand cross-court, I know that grip is so hideous, the technique is so funky, but the action he gets on that ball and his ability to get outside that ball and truly yank it cross and get his opponent stretched into the outer third to just open up these easy angles of attack for him to then pancake out that forehand, flatten it out, rip it for a down-the-line winner. Again, like... Really impressive stuff uh, that Medvedev was able to hang tough because at the end of that fourth set, he did look gassed. It just looked like physically all the different things he had had to go through just to get to this point of the event were finally starting to add up. And again, it was a credit to Medvedev. He got the break of serve, was able to generate enough depth on those returns, able to find the on-the-run Hercots forehand, I'll say, with enough consistency. By the way, again, Hercots, he was what Medvedev was smart about is Hercots is more consistent on the backhand wing, but it's not as easy for him to generate aggression as it is when he can just. I know the forehand's more erratic, but it's also the more explosive side. Medvedev did a great job of targeting his return onto that ad side of the court into that Hercots backhand, even if it well wasn't always perfect. He did it with enough depth to somewhat neutralize, somewhat neutralize that Hercots plus one in the biggest moment of those ma- of that match. But again, what you forget about Daniil Medvedev is while you think about the defensive court positioning, you think about him as a counterpuncher, ball comes in heavy off of his racket, stays real low off that backhand wing again, and then again on top of all of it, he's six foot six and can rain one twenty bombs upon you. So this was a really competitive match. Again, Hercot's coming back from a breakdown in the fourth speaks to he's got the mojo right now, but it's a massive win for Daniil Medvedev. Medvedev now into his eighth semifinal at the majors, third time in Australia. Each of the prior two, he ultimately ended up in the finals of that Australian Open. Medvedev now, by the way, earns his sixth Fifth set victory at the majors in his career. He's gotten two at this event. A guy who was four and nine coming in, now six and nine overall. At least a little confidence there uh, as he continues to progress through his prime. But, you know, again, now in the last 52 weeks, Medvedev 11 and six against top 10 opponents on just hard courts alone. His losses exclusively to Sinner, Alcaraz, and Djokovic. That, my friends, is the definition of a tier one guy as he's also beaten. Alcaraz, he has beaten Djokovic, hasn't beaten Sinner on hard courts in the last 52 weeks, but that's what tier one resume looks like. And again, into another semifinal is Daniil Medvedev to set up that blockbuster semifinal battle with Sasha Zverev. And again, they have played each other more than any other opponent in their respective careers. Medvedev, the 11-7 head-to-head lead. Medvedev, the straight set victory when they faced off in the Tour Finals and Beijing at the end of last season. Zverev getting that three-set win in Cincinnati to sort of symbolize, hey, I'm back at this level moving forward. As of right now, Tennis Abstract has Daniil Medvedev 65.4% favorite. We'll break down the mechanics of that one more on tomorrow's show. Let's switch gears now, though. Talk about all the women's action we saw on day number 11. And again, two first-time semifinalists. It's a huge deal. We're going to have a first-time finalist as well. And one of my bets coming into the 2024 season on the WTA side was that this was going to be the first year in quite some time we don't have a first-time champion at the majors. I don't know if I can guarantee that anymore. Not that oh, not that I don't think Sabalenka's best isn't still better than anyone else in the field, like as well as Coco Gauff has played here in 2024, just respectfully 
I just what you're watching Arena Sabalenka do at this tournament, it's just special stuff the way she has blitzed and dominated every opponent that she's faced. But you know who else has sneaky done that? 23-year-old Diana Yastremska, who obviously is through to her first major semifinal. And with this result, she's the biggest mover in the live rankings, up 64 spots, back into the top 30, number 29 now. She was number 93 to start this Australian Open, makes it as a qualifier, now 29 in the live rankings. Talk about trajectory-changing moment for her 2024 season all due respect to the power line drive tennis that Linda Nuskova, the 19-year-old, can play. Everything in this match was on Yastrzemska's term. Case in point, you look at the winner differential, Yastrzemska 19. Nuskova hit just six winners in this match. Now, that doesn't mean she didn't force errors. That doesn't mean her pace, her depth, her plus-one capability and the pressure she can put on Yastrzemska with her serving locations didn't ultimately have success. I mean, again, this was a 19-game match. There were just four breaks of serve, three for Yastrzemska, just one for Linda Naskova. It was very plus-one centric, not a ton of long rallies in this one. You look at the rally analysis. In fact, there were 116 points played in this match, 89 of those 116, zero to four shot rally. So if you were looking for a physical thriller, this was not the one for you. Yastrzemska was just better at the plus one. She nine-point advantage there. Again, she was a little bit more dynamic in the outer thirds. And the depth of her return of serve put more pressure on Naskova than Naskova's return of serve, which was just a little bit off in this match. Uh, and, and that's a credit to Yastrzemska, who, again, can hit the first serve with some serious pop and action on it. But Naskova's returns were spraying a little bit more than we had seen in earlier rounds. And you know, again, the moment Yastrzemska connected on a return, Naskova would be forced, unfortunately, to pop something up. And from there, that long, loopy whip of Diana Yastrzemska. It's a visceral sensation watching her hit it because you're like, damn, that thing's about to come in heavy. And it absolutely has. And again, Yastrzemska's run to get to this Australian Open semifinal really impressive. Like, not just the fact that she earned a couple of three-set victories in qualifying, but how about the fact that she's beaten... Vondrosova, Navarro, Azarenka, Naskova, Gracheva. Five top 50 players, two top 20 players, one top 10 player in Vondrosova as well. I mean, that's that's a really good run. That's extraordinarily impressive for Diana Yastrzemskin, I believe. And I'm turning to our friends at OptaAce for the best stats in the business. As always, OptaAce informing me, excluding unranked players, Diana Yastrzemska is the lowest ranked player to reach the women's single semifinals at the Australian Open in the last 40 years. Again, it excludes unranked players who are out for injury, maternity leave, etc. From 93 to the semifinals, lowest ranked in 40 years. She's the fifth qualifier in the open era to reach a Grand Slam women's singles semifinal. Here's the list. Christine Madison, 1978. Alexandra Stevenson, 99. Podoroska, Roland Garros, 2020. Radakanu on her way to winning that 2021 U.S. Open. Now, of course, Yastrzemska here in Australia. Yastrzemska, the fourth player in the last 40 years to reach the semifinals in Australia, having only defeated top 50 players. That speaks to the strength of her path here. Again, 
fourth female in the last 40 years to reach a semi in Australia, having to play exclusively top 50 players. She joined Sibylkova in 2014, Hingis in 97, Sabatini in 1994. Special stuff. Special stuff. And by the way, just to clean up the off the ace den here, Daniil Medvedev, 56th. 75th, excuse me, Grand Slam match win. Fourth player born in 1990 to achieve that. That group, Zverev, Dimitrov, and team, uh, as well as Medvedev. Medvedev, the best win percentage of the bunch. Uh, on the Zverev side of things, again, first top five victory for him. He was 0-10 at the majors against top five opponents. He's one of five players with winning records uh, with multiple matches against Carlos Alcaraz. But to get back to the Yastrzemska side of things, again, it speaks to how special this run has been for the 23-year-old. And just a course correction for her career. That's what this is. Let's keep in mind, before she turned 20 years old, Diana Stremska had won multiple WTA Tour titles in Hong Kong, Huahin, Strasbourg. You know, this was someone who was ranked as high as number 21 in the world, again, before her 20th birthday, and obviously testing positive for banned substance. The war in Ukraine and how that has affected her, her family personally, this is someone who is Ukrainian, still feels that conflict so viscerally in her everyday life. Now back into the top 30. And just again, sunshine swing. You're in. Indian Wells, Miami. You don't got to worry about playing qualifying. What do you want to do in February? Do you want to go to Mexico? You can get into those events. What do you want to do for your clay court season? Do you want to start out in Charleston? You can do that. Or you can go straight to Europe. You're getting into an event in indoors in um, – oh, my God. I'm blanking. What is our indoor clay court event on the – women's side. One of my favorite events on the season. Here's the point. That 500 level event, that feels like a great one for Diana Yastrzemska to maybe go have some success in. And the explosive nature of her ball, why wouldn't it fly through a clay court? This is why so many people got so excited about the power tennis she could play early in her career because, again, she's one of those terms-setting players we have on the WTA Tour and uh, that's really special stuff. So again, this was a massive victory for her. She just kind of overwhelmed the uh, the 19-year-old Nuskova, who, of course, it's a massive win for her this February, not, uh, this January. Not only defending the Adelaide final that she reached in 2023 by reaching the semifinals this year, first career quarterfinal at the major. She beats world one, number one Iga Swiatek, first top 10 win. Obviously, she's up 20 spots to a new career high 30. She's got some work to do to just, again, get a little stronger in her legs, get a little bit better, quicker as a mover, because I do think foundationally the anticipation skills are there. She's got a solid first step. Obviously, the pace she can produce speaks to her inherent strength and ball striking ability. She gets a little quicker look out because, again, it was the pace and the action on the Ustremska ball that overwhelmed her. She just kind of looks like a 19-year-old in that match. A really talented, successful 19-year-old whose weapons were good, but that Ustremska was just kind of a level further physically. And again, there were very few 0-5 to five shot rallies to digest in this one. Just the action of the Ustremska return of serve, the action of her plus-one forehand cross in particular to get Neskova yanked. Neskova just wasn't prepared or wasn't able to handle that successfully. So again, Noskova through to the semifinals where she will be joined by 12th seeded Jung Chin Wen. And obviously this is a crowning moment for Chin Wen, who has played elite tennis since the end of last year's Wimbledon. You look for Chin Wen now 27 and 7 
since the end of Wimbledon. Uh, obviously, quarterfinals at the U.S. Open, now semifinals here at the Australian Open. She's dropped just two sets on her way to this quarterfinal. And again, courtesy of our friends at Opta Ace. Some stats for you at 21 years and 108 days. Chin Wen, the youngest Chinese player in the Open era to reach a Grand Slam semifinal. She surpasses Zheng Jia, who reached the Wimbledon 2008 semifinal at 24 years old. You look for Chin Wen as well. Uh, I believe it was also, uh, yes, here we go, in securing victory over Kalinskaya. She's only the fourth Asian male or female player in the Open era to reach a Grand Slam semifinal before 22. Fourth Asian player, not Chinese, an entire continent. She is just the fourth to do it before 22. She joins Kazuko Sawamatsu, Hyun Chung, and Naomi Osaka as the group to do it. If you're not familiar with Sawamatsu, don't worry. It happened at the 73 Australian Open. I wasn't familiar with it either. By the way, all the women's single semifinalists at the Australian Open make it bef- uh, make it to the semis. Uh, all the semifinalists, excuse me, under the age of 26, that's the first time that has happened since 2008 when it was Sharapova, Ivanovic, Yankovic, and Hanchakova. First time since 2008 they've all been under the age of 26. Again, thank you to our friends at Opta Ace for those stats. Look, this was a good tennis match. It wasn't a great tennis match. This was a good tennis match with two players who were pretty good at everything. Kalinskaya, pretty solid mover. Kalinskaya, pretty solid line drive pace. This match kind of played out exactly as I anticipated it would. Not to pat myself in the back, but Kalinskaya was good. Chinwen was just better. A little bit more explosive, a little bit quicker in the outer third. The ball had a little bit more topspin, just a little bit more dynamic. And over time, that won out. Chin Wen uh, up a break multiple times, by the way, in the first set. But Kalinskaya consistently able to keep nipping at the heels. Didn't help that Chin Wen made just 56% of her first serves. And again, the closer that number gets to 60 the more consistent Chin Wen will be, not just as a top eight presence, but maybe even top five, like tier one clearly moving forward. Chin Wen won 80% of her first serve. She hit 10 aces in this match, 42 winners to Kalinskaya's 18, just 35 unforced errors to Kalinskaya's 30 as well. So that speaks to it. Like, and again, Kalinskaya kind of ran out of juice down the home stretch. That's because of the heaviness, the totality of things Chin Wen could do to get her stretched. They just ultimately won out. Again, Chin Wen was the more dynamic, just the better player. And Kalinskaya's very good, uh, really solidness won out in the first set, but Chin Wen won out over time. And again, it's a massive moment for Jung Chin Wen, who with this win, up to a new career high. Number 10 in the live rankings, short of Diana Yastremsko. Even if Diana Yastremsko, excuse me, wins the title, she will not be a top 10 player. So Chin Wen will be making her top 10 debut when the rankings come out next week. I mean, again, it's a fascinating semifinal matchup. So let's get to those now as we end today's show. Preview our day 12 matches here at the Australian Open. Let's start with that top half battle. Chin Wen, according to Tennis Abstract, 86.5% favorite. It's the first career head-to-head matchup between the two. Again, Chin Wen, 27-7 and overall since the end of Wimbledon. Against opponents ranked outside the top 20, she is a perfect 22-0. and Five and seven against top 20 opponents. We can make of that what we will and that she hasn't had to face a single top 20 opponent and she's knocking on the door of the final. Again, that's a discussion maybe we can have when we reflect upon this tournament after the show, but you don't play the, you don't hate the player, you hate the, uh, don't hate the player, hate the game. 
You play the draw, you're dealt. Chin Wen has done that remarkably successfully. Again, she's beaten everyone she's supposed to beat of late. 22-0 against opponents ranked outside the top 20 since the uh, end of Wimbledon. She's 12-8 since the start of 2023 against opponents over 5'10", and that's the barometer I use, of course, to try and suss out her record against power-centric opponents like Yastremska. Wins this year over two power-centric players in Kruger, Katie Bolter, but... Obviously, Yastrzemska's ball comes in maybe even hotter, more dynamic, and she's definitely a better mover right now than either of those players. Chinwen wins in October over Krechikova, Donna Vekic. Losses to Rabakina, Sabalenka, Samsonova, and Keys. but are we really ready to put Yastrzemska on that tier of power player yet? And even in those losses, I mean, again, well, I guess the losses to Rabakina, Sabalenka, pretty dis- – honestly, they were all pretty decisive. Look, if you have some serious weapons, that is a concern for Chin Wen because that forehand grip is extreme because she needs a little bit more time to get into that backswing because that backhand will leak on her a little bit wide sometimes when you can jam her with the right sort of action. And certainly Diana Yastremska can do all of those things, right? Extraordinary uh, – such a big hitter, so successful – uh, the ball. I mean, again, she's playing with fire right now. It's hard to like even offer you stats from the past because this is the best version of Diana Yastrzemska we've ever seen. Fine, she's thirteen and nineteen against top twenty opponents in her career on hard courts, but she has five top fifty wins against hard court uh, on hard courts at this Australian Open. Yastrzemska, similar metric. What's her record over the uh, against the five foot ten and over players? She's twenty seven and twenty four in her career in tour level matches on hard courts against those power tennis centric players. I mean, again, Chin Wen, despite all the players that Yastrzemska has faced to get to this point, Nesco, oh, I mean, Azarenka can play some serious line drive, plus one ball. But she can't move as well as Chin Wen can. Doesn't hit the ball with as much action to get that ball up on Diana Yastrzemska, and thus she's not going to be able to have that much time to get into her backswing freely. And yet again, she's dictated against power tennis-centric players in Azarenka, in Navarro, in Naskova. She worked a Marquette of Vondrosova, who you thought, okay, physically she'll get Vondro- – Vondrosova will get her stretched and we're at weird angles. No, that wasn't the case. If you are asking me whose best has been better in this 2024 Australian Open, I guess you're not asking me. I'm asking myself. Yastrzemska's best has been better than Chin Wen's best, at least from an eye test perspective, in my opinion, so far this event – that's why that number for tennis abstract is absurd, and it speaks to, again, that Yastrzemska's run somewhat out of nowhere. <sighs> the pace, the heaviness, the action into that Chin Wen forehand, that's the thing that concerns me, and yet Chin Wen's a different sort of first serve, right, than a Navarro, a Gracheva, a Vondrosova. I mean, Azarenka is that sort of first serve. Noskova hits the spots well, but Chinwen may be even more explosive. And again, it's the heavy topspin nature of Chinwen's power. That's a sort of that's a different sort of test than Yastremska has seen thus far. Yastremska, though, she's playing, you know, again, she can swing freely. Everything after this, this is the cherry on top. You've already made the semifinals. You're already back in the top 30. You've already set the course for a different 2024 than you expected starting the month. 
Narrative-wise, I've been on driving the Chinwen bandwagon. I've said it's win, not if she makes her top 10 debut. That's happening next week. Win, not if she elevates herself to Tier 1, makes that first slam final. That opportunity is here. I'm going to double down on that take. <sighs> but I don't – again, Yastremska's best has been better than Chin Wen's, and she's faced a tougher level of competition thus far. <sighs> Chin Wen 6-4 in the third. No, 6-3 in the third. But I don't feel great about it. And then, obviously, the blockbuster, the granddaddy of them all, maybe our best semifinal of all the semifinals, the U.S. Open final rematch. Sabalenka versus Goff. First time since 2011 we've seen a U.S. Open final rematch at the subsequent Australian Open. For what it's worth, Coco Goff a 57% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract. Why might that be the case? Well, Coco Goff 4-2 in the career head-to-head, though they split last year's matchups. Goff, obviously, the three-set win the U.S. Open Finals. Sabalenka 4-0 when those two faced off in the Indian Wells quarterfinal. But, of course, Coco Goff right now on a remarkable run. 34-4. Overall, since the end of Wimbledon, she's 8-4 against top 10 opponents during that stretch. And by the way, she's only lost to two players, Iga Sviantek and Jessica Pagula. That's it since the end of Wimbledon. Third career major semifinal for Goff, but of course, Goff now 10-0 overall to start her 2024 season. Three-set win over Marta Kostyuk obviously was far from her best tennis, but the mental confidence of getting over that hurdle and winning that match winning ugly, as the tennis gods like to say, that pays some major dividends. That has some massive benefits for golf just from a mental standpoint, knowing, okay, now I got to raise my level, but I can swing a little bit more freely now because this is the match I was trying to get to. This is the one you're trying to set up, right, when you're taking on an arena Sabalenka, who through 10 sets of tennis, a reminder, has dropped just 16 games in 10 sets of tennis so far this event. She's 9-1 through her first 10 matches. Her one loss, a loss to an Elena Rabakina who is playing maybe the best tennis I've ever seen in a women's tennis match. Like It was that exceptional from her in Brisbane, the display of power that was required to get the ball off Sabalenka's rackets, disrupt her terms. That's just something no one, no one, no one has been able to do at this Australian Open. And obviously, it's a sixth straight semifinal for Sabalenka at the majors. Yeah, she's two and five overall in this semifinal round, but I said this yesterday. Graf, Everett, Serena, Hingis, I maybe Sellis as well, and Sabalenka. That's, I think, the list of six players. It's everyone but Navratilova that are the Mount Rushmore players on the WTA Tour. Everyone but Navratilova and now Sabalenka has made six straight semifinals. Like, that's the list of players to do it before the age of 26. I think Iga Sviantek's going to be on that list eventually, maybe even Coco Goff. She's, heck, two of the way there. That's the hard part. The first two, they always say. Um, Yeah, like, I mean, again, it's remarkable what Arena Sabalenka has done. I test-wise, she's the better player coming into this match. I know you look at the pathway. Sabalenka so far wins over Krechikova, Nisimova, Serenko, Fruvertova, and Seidel. Goff wins over Kostyuk, Frech, Parks, Dalahide, Shmidlova. I'd argue Goff had, uh, excuse me, I'd argue Sabalenka's had the tougher path from a name perspective and yet has dominated opponents in a way that Goff certainly was prior to that quarterfinal matchup. But post-quarterfinal, again, you just, you have a bit of doubt for Coco Goff in a way you just 
haven't had any doubt for Arena Sabalenka in this 2024. And again, Coco Goff's playing elite tennis. Sabalenka is playing the best possible version of Serena Williams' Power Tennis Country Club stuff, where just everything off of her racket, first serve, plus one, return of serve, volleys, it doesn't matter. She's just blitzing you. Now again, does the mental hurdle, do the mental ghosts of past start to creep up for Sabalenka as they have of a in big matches of late? That's been the only thing that's held her back. Again, six straight semifinals, and I believe all of the first five have been either a victory for Sabalenka or three set matches. And indeed, that's exactly been the case. Straight set win over Lynette last year in Australia. Three set losses. Uh, uh, straight, uh, third set win over Madison Keys, excuse me. And the, so four for five, last five have been three set matches. Again, sometimes the inconsistent, that six love set to Keys, first set US Open. No one saw that. Well, maybe you did see that coming with how well Keys was playing against Pagula earlier. But the point is, if there are any yips, if there are any bouts of cons- uh, inconsistency, no one is more prepared mentally, physically, spiritually right now than Coco Goff to capitalize on that. Because again, Coco Goff's playing with house money, 34-4 and since the end of Wimbledon, 10-0 and to start her 2024 season and escape the match that she probably should have lost against Kostyuk, given that 5-1 first set deficit and just how many unforced errors there were, how off things seemed to be from a calibration standpoint, those first two sets. Look, Goff has the career head-to-head, but again, Sabalenka's playing with the sort of precision and overwhelmingness that you wonder if the golf forehand, like if this is the sort of weapon where maybe this is where the golf forehand might still break down under a little bit of pressure. Again, golf's been moving so well. She hasn't faced a power opponent like this, though, so far on her track to, again, despite, I guess, Alicia Parks to some extent, but you can't even compare the consistency of Parks to Sabalenka at this point. Look, I'm picking Sabalenka because she's played the best tennis I've seen from anyone in this month of January from start to finish. Obviously, Rabakina's absolute best was the biggest best peak for a single match, but Sabalenka has, for the most part, sustained her level, has been this for 9 out of 10 matches. And again, the one match she wasn't was just an otherworldly performance for Rabakina. This is not a bet against Coco Goff. This is a bet on Arena Sabalenka sustaining this level. I just think something has clicked for the world number two Give me Sabalenka to win this match. I think she's going to do it in straight sets as well. I, I think it's going to be competitive, but I think it's like a 3-3 three and three performance. And honestly, 3-3 three and three would be pretty darn good for how well Arena Sabalenka is playing right now. But again, Coco Goff uh, leads the career head-to-head 4-2, 57% favorite according to Tennis Abstract. That said, that's all my thoughts coming out of day 11, heading towards day 12, heading towards our semifinal rounds of this 2024 Australian Open. Now, of course, a reminder, with the Australian Open wrapping up, Time is opening up on your tennis watching calendar, and we've got exactly what you might be looking for in our future, uh, in your future as well. ITA kickoff weekend. We'll have coverage on ESPN Plus Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Thirty of the best teams in the country all competing uh, throughout the course. Excuse me, sixty of the best men's and women's teams in the country all competing throughout the course of the weekend. So make sure you tune in, whether it's ESPN Plus. 
or our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. And if you need a preview of those events, head on over to the Great Shot Podcast feed. A shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the <laughs> of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A thank you to him. A thank you as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. We'll be right back.